The Eagle and Child, Episode 11. The Perfect Penitent. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we come to the penultimate chapter of Book 2. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And as always, I'm joined by a fellow Christian washed in the blood of the Lamb, Matt. The blood of the Lamb that fits perfectly with today, we'll be getting into some higher theology around the concept of the atonement, which essentially boils down to answering two questions. Why did God invade this enemy-occupied territory? if you remember that term from previous episodes. And two, what did the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ do for us? So, with those clearly very simple and easy to answer questions in mind... Very simple. Let's cheers and dive right in. And what beer are we having today, Matt? We ventured out to a ballast point bonito. At the command is the word I want to use (laughs) of a listener who said, Heineken, can you guys get a little bit more creative with the beers that you drink? Hey, if he didn't tweet me about it, how am I meant to know? Yeah, that's his fault. Yeah. Anyway, cheers. Cheers. So jumping right in, why did the sun come to earth? I mean, what was the main point of this? Well, Jack says that, well, Jesus obviously came to teach. And a lot of people, you hear that, they say Jesus was just a great moral teacher. And Jack does say, of course, he was a great teacher. But if you read the New Testament or any other Christian writing, and you find them talking about his sacrifice. And Jack says that obviously Christians think that the chief point of the story, the chief point of the incarnation of Jesus coming to earth, lies here. It's like the central focal point. And then Lewis goes on to make a point, which when I first read it, initially took me aback. But as I thought about it a little more, I could see his point. Here's what he says. The central belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. And I want to bring in here a few scriptural references to back up what Lewis is talking about. Looking at 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says, For God indeed was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And then again in Colossians, it says, Because in him it hath well pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, and through him to reconcile all things unto himself. Notice both of those. There's this reconciling the world. And that's what this all comes down to. Jack goes on and says, Theories about Christ's death are not Christianity. They are explanations as to how it works. We're told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed our sins, and that by dying he disabled death itself. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. And that's an important distinction that you just brought up if the listeners didn't catch it. The explanation of how it works is different than what we have to believe in. It's the difference between the what and the how. In classic Lewis, here comes an analogy. He is a master of these things. He is. And he talks about dinner. Something very casual, very normal to us. He said people ate their dinners and felt better long before the theory of vitamins was ever heard of. He means vitamins to the English listener. (laughs) 
I remember the first time I heard that in Oxford. <laughs> Vitamins and minerals <laughs> caught me by surprise. So, and he goes on to say, if the theories of vitamins is someday abandoned, they will still go on eating their dinners just the same. A man can eat his dinner without understanding exactly how food nourishes him. A man can accept what Christ has done without knowing how it works. But again, classic Lewis, he says the how is not what's most important. It's secondary. But even given that, he's going to take a stab at exploring it. In the next section, Lewis is going to talk about substitutionary atonement, which I think is the theory behind the atonement which most Christians will be familiar with, or at least heard most often. And Lewis actually says that before he became a Christian, he thought that this was what you had to believe, this particular explanation of the atonement. And am I correct? He also thought it was silly at first? He's going to get into that, and okay. now he thinks it's at least less silly. <laughs> But before we get into what Lewis says, I did just want to emphasize that this is not the only theory of the atonement that's out there. He doesn't mention the others, but there's the ransom theory, the recapitulation theory, dramatic theory, mystical theory, moral influence, example, commercial, governmental, and another one which I think a lot of people will be very familiar with, because it's typically held by those of the reform tradition, and that's penal substitution theory. Hmm. And you typically hear that expressed rather succinctly that Man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is perfectly just. In order for him to be just, he has to unleash his wrath to punish sin. Christ comes to earth. The Father pours out his wrath on the Son in the cross, thereby satisfying the demands of justice. And that is ultimately how we're made right with God. It's funny you say that. That is actually what I heard a lot growing up in West Michigan. is a very reformed community. Mm -hmm. That's what I used to believe. Yeah. And I should, I use the word used to believe as if that's not true. That's not necessarily the case. It's a theory again. And <clears throat> it's got some elements in it that I would personally find troubling, primarily because it ruptures the Trinity. As soon as you say that the Father is pouring out his wrath onto the Son, the Trinity is no longer an eternal relationship of love. I think that's rather problematic. And actually, when Lewis is discussing the different theories of the atonement, he says that his own church, the Church of England, doesn't put forward one theory or another. But he does say that Rome goes a bit further, which I'll admit I found a little confusing. I wasn't quite sure what he was getting at. But what I think he's drawing on is that the Catholic Church has shot down certain theories. Rather than presenting a particular theory as the Catholic theory of the atonement, they point out problems with some of the ideas and some of the analogies and some of the explanations that people have put forward in order to explain the atonement in a way that, say, the Church of England hasn't done. So he starts discussing substitutionary atonement. He says that this idea is that we're let off because Christ has volunteered to bear a punishment instead of us. And Jack is very honest. He says that he feels that this theory presents some challenges. He thought it was kind of ridiculous before he became a Christian. Now he thinks it less so, but it still raises some questions. He asks, if God was prepared to let us off, then why on earth did he not do so? And what possible point could there be in punishing an innocent person instead? And I think particularly the Reformed folks would emphasize God's justice. God is an all-holy God and therefore can't bear the presence of sin, and therefore justice must be met. Essentially saying he couldn't actually let them off. Mm -hmm. It kind of tying in with something that Jack is going to say a little bit later about repentance. But we'll get to that in a moment. But Jack 
redeems this redemption, so to speak, by saying that it makes much more sense in his head if it's, rather than punishment, it's about somebody having a debt. He says, there's plenty of point in a person who has some assets paying it on behalf of someone who has not. It is the common experience that when one person has got himself into a hole, the trouble of getting him out usually falls on a kind friend. And I love this. I think atonement makes so much more sense when couched in these terms. And although the Catholic Church doesn't present a theory of the atonement, what I would say is the Catholic Church emphasizes much more heavily the value of Christ's sacrifice, that this is a sacrifice of infinite value upon which we can draw, and that it's the value of that sacrifice, that positive good, that crediting this vast sum of money to our account. This is what gets us off. This is what pulls us out of the debt that we find ourselves in. When I first read this, I actually thought this wasn't that good of a switch. I remember thinking, okay, you're switching from forgiving this punishment to just forgiving this debt. He could just forgive it still. At the end of the day, he could, a debtor has the ability to not force you to pay the debt. But I thought you had a, a good response to that. I would actually go back to that same argument of justice, that the books need to be balanced, that there is a debt that needs to be paid, that there is a wrong that needs to be made right. I like that way of looking at it. It's a wrong that needs to be right. You take away this punishment aspect of it and you just look at it as rewriting things, which is essentially what justification is, what the atonement is referring to. And Jack Sashiel is going to make a description of repentance a little later that I think will add an extra layer to this that will also help make more sense. Yes. The obvious question hearing all of this becomes, what is this debt? And Jack lays out man's problem when he says, he had tried to set up on his own, to behave as if he belonged to himself. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Think back to last week's episode when we discussed free will, Satan, and the fall. It was very much presented as this rebellion, which is essentially where we put ourselves first. The second there is this self, which God put in us with free will, there's also this chance to put the self first. And so that's this rebellion. That's this debt that needs to be paid. And if we're rebelling and we need to lay down our arms, we need to repent. And this process of repentance is a process of surrendering. This movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. It means unlearning all the self conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. I like this last part of Lewis's quote. It means killing part of ourselves, undergoing a kind of death. So much the New Testament has this death and rebirth. Mm -hmm. I think this is spot on. That is classic Pauline theology. And then Lewis goes on to make the point, repentance, it's not optional. Yeah, and this is the point that I was hinting at earlier. Jack explains what repentance is. He says it's not simply something that God demands of you before he will take you back and which he chose. It's simply a description of what going back to him is like. We've said many times in this podcast that Christianity speaks about reality. It explains it. And the reality of going back to God is what we call repentance. Jack says that if you ask God to take you back without it, without repentance, you are really asking him to let you go back 
without going back. But doesn't this lead to a dilemma? Yeah, this is the problem that he presents and he explains using his theory of the atonement, which he calls the perfect penitent. He says that only a bad person needs to repent, right? But he says there's a real problem in that. The more you need to repent, the less good you're going to be at repenting. On the other end, the person who would be perfect at repenting would be a good man, but he's the one who doesn't actually need it. So essentially it sounds like we can only do this with God's help. Yes, and I think this is really essential in understanding what Lewis is explaining with the perfect penitent, how he understands God's help. Lewis's conception, and for those of you who don't know, I'm an Eastern Catholic, so our theology is a little different. We're still Catholic, we're still in communion with the Pope, but we express theology a little differently. But there's a great emphasis here on participating in the life of God. Uh, St. Peter talks about partaking of the divine nature. And Lewis really expresses his theology in very similar terms. He says that when we talk about God helping us, it's really him putting a little bit of himself into us. This is what he says. He lends us a little of his reasoning powers, and that is how we think. He puts a little of his love into us, and that is how we love one another. We love and we reason because God loves and reasons, and he holds our hand while we do it. I have to say that again. He puts a little of his love into us, and that is how we love one another. There is so much grace in that sentence. But this presents a problem. Because if God helping us is God putting a little bit of who he is in us, well, what do we do if we need to repent? That would mean that God would need to put a little bit of his repentance into us but he in can't order repent. to help us to repent. But he can't repent. Because he's God, he's perfect, he has nothing to repent of. It's the dilemma that Lewis spoke of earlier. Yeah. You know, it's the bad man who needs to repent. But because he's bad, he's not going to be very good at it. It's actually the perfect man who is going to be able to repent, but he doesn't need it. Here's what he says. We now need God's help in order to do something which God, in his own nature, never does at all. To surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all. God can only share what he has. This thing in his own nature, he has not. And this brings us right back to the beginning, that question. Why is God entered enemy-occupied territory? Why the incarnation? And that's the answer. Supposing God became a man, suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us. But God can do it only if he becomes man. It's just kind of breathtaking. I had never really viewed the incarnation in that fashion. I'm pretty blown away by it. I mean, honestly, I would say the incarnation never seemed that important to me for the majority of my Christian walk. I focus more on the teaching side of it. See, I have focused, Not the incarnation, but of Jesus. Yeah, I, I focus more on his passion because that's where justification takes place. And the incarnation just seemed to be a necessary step that you need to take in order to get there. Mm-hmm. But in more recent years, I've started to see how important the incarnation is and also how breathtaking it is. 
I think Christians, we grow up hearing God became man. And we go, okay. God became man. (laughs) In the words of the Byzantine liturgy, the ineffable, the inconceivable, the incomprehensible. This is the transcendent God entering into his own creation. It would be the equivalent of man becoming a slug or something so much more primitive. And I'll actually say apologetics has really helped grow my appreciation for the breathtaking nature, the mind-boggling idea of the incarnation. Because particularly when I was living in London, I'd go to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park on Sundays, and there'll be lots of Muslim apologists. And it really helped me appreciate how incredible this is. Because they are, I would say, legitimately horrified as to what God becoming man means. That means he gets tired. It means he gets hungry. One that they love to talk about. It means he has to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Just think for a moment what it means to be the transcendent, all-powerful God, and then to become a zygote, a fetus, a little baby, dependent upon the creatures that you yourself made. I appreciate you ruining that for me, because I'm picturing (laughs) Jesus going to the bathroom. It's an important part of the human experience. I know. As the Father said, that which was not assumed was not redeemed. Basically, if Jesus had left out part of our nature, if he hadn't taken all of it upon himself, then it couldn't be raised up into the Godhead. But the point is, it was all assumed. He was fully God, but also fully man. He took all of our humanity, and then he brought that up to the Father. He restored the divine life that we had lost. I think... One thing I'm taking away from all of this is looking at my own journey, as I mentioned, in the beginning when I was reading the Gospels, which is essentially Jesus' life, I'm internalizing it in a way that Jesus is setting the example of how I'm supposed to live, which is part of it and very correct. We are called, Lewis mentions this actually later in this chapter, we are still called to mimic him. Mm Mm-hmm. In correction, I believe it's actually next chapter. But that's only part of it. And now I'm realizing at that time when I'm thinking that old way, it all became about how can I change myself to be like him? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yes. But now when I understand the incarnation, I now see the grace in that. There's still my... My... Response. My response. But he, in his grace, is bringing me into that divine trinity that sonship he initiates yes while we were still sinners christ died for us as saint paul said but even before he died for us he came down to us it was a divine condescension the all-powerful transcendent god becoming a little baby and what hope does all of this give you that old mechanism as i'm trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps as you say which is pelagianism and a heresy Condemned by the Catholic Church in the 5th century, I think. That's good to point that out. I got so demoralized because I just couldn't do it. And now I realize, yeah, I can't do it. But with God's grace, I can. Mm -hmm. And because of the incarnation, I can enter into that suffering with Jesus. And together, through his grace, can finally... Be raised up to be a son of God. Exactly. Be renewed to be reconciled. To be a son in the Son. I love that. Enough said there. (laughs) Now, Lewis then talks about some objections that people have about this. Because some people complain that, well, 
If Jesus was God, well, then honestly, his suffering just loses all value in my eyes. Yeah, he had an unfair advantage. It was unfair. He was God. Yeah. And first of all, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm sorry, reading the Gospels and even seeing The Passion of Christ, which I know is a movie, but I think does a good job, that didn't look very easy to me. If, if somebody is bleeding blood out of stress in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't think it was that easy. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. But let's, let's give them that point. Mm. Let's say it was easier. They actually understate their case in that case. Yes. Because as we talked about repentance, it actually takes the perfect man to repent perfectly. It wasn't just that the suffering was easier and the repentance was easier for Jesus because he was God. It was only possible because he was God, because we needed a perfect penitent. And I think he gives some analogies here. The first analogy he gives is learning to write. He says, a child will learn from a teacher. Why does a child learn from a teacher? Because the teacher knows how to write. It's the same with learning any skill. If you want to learn it, you go to somebody who is more proficient in it than you. I kind of like to go to people who don't know how to do things to learn. <laughs> figure, let's both just struggle together. It's like, I really want to become a surgeon. I'm going to talk to my postman about it. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. I don't. <laughs> let's figure it out let's together. Let's figure it out together. Who's the first volunteer? No. <laughs> we don't complain when we go to a teacher that they have an unfair advantage and therefore wish to reject their help or be ungrateful because this is something that they already know. That's the very reason we've gone to them. That's exactly right. Let's give an even better example that I think highlights the ludicrousness of this statement. Imagine you're drowning and someone's on shore and they're ready to lend you a hand and to save you. Would you say to them, no, 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 this is unfair. You're on the ground. I'm in the water. I don't want your help. No. The only reason he can help you is because of his position. He's got one foot on the land, one foot in the water. He's God and he's man. Same idea. If somebody is offering you help that you need, take it. The very fact that they are offering you help means that they are stronger, more proficient in some aspect than you. And you'd be crazy not to accept the help. And the beautiful part about Jesus is he does have an advantage, but then he's trying to bring us into that same advantage. He's trying to make us sons of God. He's trying to bring us into that divine trinity. And it's also for a purpose. It's to be drawn into the life of God, but also so that we ourselves will be conduits of that divine life. Exactly. To be able to pass it on to other people. If we get pulled out of the river by Jesus, we can then stand on the riverside as well. And obviously with his help and with his grace, we can also help pull people ashore. But it's only because he first pulled us ashore. That reminds me of one of my favorite books of all time. Other than mere Christianity, obviously. <laughs> Henry Nouwen's The Prodigal Son. Beautiful. He describes the story of the prodigal son as this journey where God is the father, we're the son. But I'd never heard this before. He takes it a step further. After we receive that unconditional love from the father, we are called to become the father to others. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what you're saying. We, once we receive that unconditional love, we are called to give it. To others. So that's your challenge for this week. If you've received this unconditional love from God, pass it on to someone else. <laughs> My outline for the chapter will be in the show notes, but unfortunately there are going to be no more C.S. Lewis doodles for the rest of book two. 
but they are recording more. Matt and I are part of a C.S. Lewis reading group here in San Diego, as I've mentioned before. We're actually currently working on The Four Loves, and the C.S. Lewis Doodle team are working through that book at the moment. So when we eventually finish Mere Christianity and we start on The Four Loves, there will be doodles aplenty. How do you know that? How do I know that they're doing them? I see yeah. it in, the, in, the, in my feed. Ah. I'm subscribed to them. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if there's some greater thing there where you reached out to them. <laughs> no, no, not quite. Knowing you, 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 you developed these relationships within the, Catholic, <laughs> the uh, Christian community. And actually, on that point, just before we sign off, I'd encourage everyone to go and listen to and subscribe to the All About Jack podcast. I've been listening to it a lot over the last month or so, and they've got some fantastic interviews with different C.S. Lewis authors. But in particular, since we've now finished book one, I'll put a link in the show notes. There was a wonderful episode with Peter S. Williams. He produced a book called C.S. Lewis and the New Atheists, and he goes through how C.S. Lewis would respond to things that the New Atheists like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett have been saying. And now back to our podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe. If you've been trying to write a review in iTunes and it hasn't been taking, Apple seem to have fixed that issue now. So please just spend 10 seconds, give us a rating, write us a one-line review. You can say that you just like my accent or you just love how Matt is so excited all the time. That <laughs> incredibly would, excited. Incredibly excited. That would be great because I'm now starting to see us move up the ranks when you type in C.S. Lewis. I'm seeing right down at the bottom, the eagle and child start to appear. I just looked the other day and it was the second row. I literally just searched C.S. Lewis. Second row. Hear that, people? Please help, help us get to the first row. That would be great. We just want more people to be reading C.S. Lewis and benefiting from his wonderful writings. And if you've got any thoughts about anything that we've said or any arguments that Lewis puts forward, you can always contact us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net, or tweet us at Pints with Jack. We really would love to hear your feedback, what you're excited about, what you like, any objections. I mean, I have to imagine there's listeners that are struggling with some of the things that we've said so far. Give us a chance to address those. We would love to unpack things further. And next week, we're going to be finishing book two. And so we'll look forward to spending more time with you then when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>